Good morning to you at Osterville Baptist Church and the others who have joined us for this service. I am so thankful for uh, Pastor Rob and the invitation uh, to preach these next three Sundays, and I can only pray he gets a little bit of rest. I know how hard he works on his messages and how much we benefit from them, as well as the many other uh, acts of ministry that is upon him, especially uh, during these days. For the next three Sundays, I believe the Lord would have us look into the book of Habakkuk. So probably some of you are wondering now, how do you pronounce that name again and where is it? Well, it's at the end of the Old Testament. So you take your Bible and you turn to the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, blow the dust off the book of Habakkuk, and then uh, you've got it. And that's what we want to look at for the next a few weeks together. In 55 years of ministry, this is really the first year that I am teaching or preaching through the book of Habakkuk. I'm thrilled to say that God really has touched my own heart uh, in the message preparation, and it certainly has a powerful and relevant message for the day in which we live. In January, I began studying the book of Habakkuk and decided to have a little fun at first. And so I went out into the marketplace and just at random with people I didn't know, I asked them a question. I told them I was studying and that if they could help me, it would benefit me. And so I said, I'm going to just say a word to you. And if you know what the word means, tell me. If you don't know what it means, then simply take a guess. So we started with the first lady, and I said, uh, Habakkuk. And she said, hmm, a Jewish holiday. I thought, well, you know, that kind of sounds like a, a, a Jewish holiday, but that wasn't the correct answer. I asked a gentleman in another restaurant, and he said, it sounds to me like some kind of lower backache. And I thought, Habakkuk, I can, I can catch that. But the one that intrigued me the most was a Latino lady in the Kentucky Fried Chicken on International Drive in Orlando. And when I asked her, I could tell she kind of thought she knew and she uh, went back and forth a little bit and you could see that her mind was working. And um, finally, she just looked at me and says, I do not know. She says, what, what is it? I said, well, Habakkuk was a prophet who wrote a book of the Bible. And then all of a sudden her eyes lit up and she got a big smile on her face and she says, ah, you mean Habakkuk, Habakkuk. You don't pronounce it correctly. So I'm going to let you decide how to pronounce it. But there are two correct pronunciations, Habakkuk and Habakkuk. So there's a uh, wonderful lesson that Habakkuk has for us, and we're going to be looking into that information together. Now, the name Habakkuk literally means to either embrace or wrestle, and we can't tell whether it's in the passive voice or the active voice. While yearning to be embraced by God, that is the passive, he is also wrestling with God, the active. It says in chapter 3, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now the word oracle means a burden. There's a heavy weight on the heart of Habakkuk. And he dialogues with God back and forth. 
Now, you know that a prophet in the Old Testament spoke on behalf of God to man. But here, Habakkuk doesn't even address the people at all. It's like we're getting inside a spiritual journal that he is writing down of a dialogue between himself and God Almighty. Thus, in a sense, he's more speaking to God on behalf of the people than speaking to the people on behalf of God. At the end of the book, in chapter 3, verse 19, it says, It is inscribed to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. And so many believe that Habakkuk was a Levitical priest who had a ministry of music, a worship leader, we would say, uh, today. And so I'm sure Pastor Kimo is going to take special interest in the study of this book. And then this musician, whose duties were pretty well detailed and prescribed for him, now is called to the prophetic office. So he goes from a rather complacent life to a confrontative ministry. He begins the book with a sob in the heart. You feel the burden, you feel the, the ache, but it ends with a song on his lips. I've entitled this three-week series, From Anxiety to Adoration. Now, let me back up for a moment. Where does Habakkuk fit in the Old Testament timeline? As you look at the chart on the screen, it appears that he wrote between 606 and 604 BC as the nation Babylon was rising as the dominant world power. He spoke often of an imminent Babylonian invasion of the country of Judah an event that occurred on a smaller scale in 606 and then repeated in 597, but it was really in 586 when Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the holy temple, and led the people into captivity into Babylon. The way Habakkuk described Judah also indicates for us a very low time in her spiritual walk with God and her history. This next chart you're looking at gives you the overview of the book in Habakkuk's life as he moves from anxiety to adoration. In chapter 1, as we'll see, he is wrestling with God. And it's as though he's looking at God and saying, I am perplexed by you. His perspective is horizontal. He's looking all around him at the world in which he is living, and he has a very anxious mind and heart. Then we see Habakkuk moving from wrestling with God in chapter 2. He's waiting upon God. He's no longer saying, Lord, I am perplexed by you. He is saying, Lord, I am pondering you. And he looks up, as it were, with acceptance. And then in chapter 3, Habakkuk is worshiping God and says, Lord, I'm no longer perplexed, I'm no longer pondering, I am praising you while looking ahead by faith and adoration. Now I'm sure there are many of you watching today with anxiety on your mind and heart as to why things are happening to you and your family and perhaps in the world and you're wrestling with God in your spirit. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, where we see the first question, do you care about my situation? 
The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Question number one, do you really care about my situation? Now, three things we want to note here. Number one, he lives amongst a disobedience because Israel uh, was what we would call backslidden spiritually. Most songs are born in a certain context, and so are the books of the Bible. Habakkuk's day was no exception. Times were hard. Judah the nation was boldly and unashamedly in rebellion against Jehovah God. But most of Habakkuk's life was lived in a time of godliness, and a time of revival that was led by a king whose name was Josiah. He reigned from 640 to 609 B.C. That was only three to five years removed from the time Habakkuk penned these words. Now, we don't have the time to read the chapter, but if you want to see what happened in those years, you can read 2 Chronicles 34 because it describes for us what a true revival looks like. And I know some of you are praying for a revival in our country and in our world that people would turn to God during these times. So we can't read it all, but Josiah began reigning, believe this, at the age of eight. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. It says, he walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn to the right hand or to the left. He was straight ahead for God. At the age of 16, a teenager, he made a definite decision to seek God with all of his heart. Four years later, at the age of 20, he purged Judah of the high places. He tore down the pagan altars of Baal. He cleaned up the land. He broke in pieces the Asherim poles. Who was Asherim? She was the goddess of fertility, and they say the pornography was so obscene, much you couldn't write about. But it says in verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 34, that Josiah made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then it says he burned the bones of the idolatrous priests. Some kind of revival. He cleaned up the land and he walked with God. And then a few years passed, just a few, and they soon forgot the days of Josiah. Within a short time, we are introduced to King Jehoiakim. This king hated the scrolls of God so much that when a servant brought him the writings of Jeremiah, by the way, Jeremiah the prophet was a contemporary of Habakkuk, living here at the same time, when the king was handed these scrolls written by Jeremiah, the very word of God, he carved them up with his knife, and then it says he burned them all. Habakkuk, Jeremiah lived under the reign of an evil king with many false prophets in the land promising peace. Don't you think they're asking, where in the world is God? Habakkuk doesn't say it just outright, but he thinks that God is indifferent. So what does a righteous man do at such a time? Well, 
living among this disobedience. Point B, he longs for deliverance. Verses 2 and 3 say, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Notice the two questions. These are the questions we often ask so much. Lord, how long? How long will this last? And number two, why, Lord? Why are you allowing this to happen? I cry out and I don't hear a thing. You don't deliver. You and I know the Christian life is never easy. The walk of faith is very personal, but it's filled with problems and challenges. You don't have to be a Christian very long to realize that. The lives of the Israelites were filled with problems. The apostles had problems. For 2,000 years, the church has had its challenges. And there were problems in the mind of Habakkuk as he wrote this prophecy. And the reason there are always problems is because there's always a relentless enemy, an adversary, Satan, whose desire is to rob, to destroy, and to kill us. To, to rob us of blessing and peace in our marriages, in our home. To cause turmoil around us. And the problems are seen in that Satan's desire is always to undermine our faith, to cause us to doubt God, to doubt God's word. Hath God really said his love or to doubt that God cares? Many of us find problems and thoughts coming into our minds and our hearts, and we simply can't get a grip on it. Sorrows difficult to cope with, temptations that tend us to even question God and wonder, does God really care? So Satan tempts us to doubt God in order to undermine our faith. And if Habakkuk's first charge to God is that you're indifferent, you really don't even care. Now he says God is inactive. Why does he say that? Look at point C. He looks at the destruction all around him. As Habakkuk looks at the circumstances around him, it's kind of like us. When we look around and our focus is on what is happening, uh, then the questions and the problems just seem to increase and multiply. He comes to a fourfold conclusion as to what he sees. Let me read verses 3 and 4 for you. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. There's plundering. There's violence. By the way, the word violence is used six times in the book of Habakkuk. There's strife and contention. The law of God is ignored. That's the worst. Just set the word of God aside. Justice is not conducted, and when it is, and it comes forth, it's perverted justice. The nation reeks, and Lord, if you're the holy God of heaven, how can you stand back? Oh, God, step in. Give me some help. Do you even care just a little bit? He's really burdened. I voice my complaint. How long? Why? I circle those words in my Bible. Those are the questions we ask God, and most of the time we never get an answer, and neither did Habakkuk. 
Remember the sisters of Lazarus? Lord, you should have come immediately. They're angry. We told you that he whom you love is sick. We knew you'd come, but you were late, Lord. You were late. And if you had been here, our brother would not have died. I want to remind you, God is never, never, never late. If you're late, it means you should have been there. But God often delays. And that has behind it the idea of purpose. Habakkuk tells God the nations it is in rebellion. And if you're the holy God of heaven, how good you step back, step in, give me some help. Do you even care? He's really, really burdened. Habakkuk, a man of God, has his heart just bleeding before God as to why God allows all this. God, you're indifferent. You're an active God. I don't see your hand at work in the world around me. And soon he's going to even add inconsistent. You are inconsistent, God. So many times in life we're frustrated by what we see in the world and around us and maybe even in our homes. We wonder, where is God in all this? Watching the Islamic extremists behead fellow brothers and sisters around the world. Where is God? Boko Haram kidnapping little Nigerian children turning them into sex slaves. Where is God at this time? The Mexican drug cartel running and killing thousands of our young people, yet no one can seem to stop them. The godless culture with the changing of moral standards and attack on biblical truths is disturbing. The fall with a marriage, not honoring the vows, the turning from God, the politics of the day is so vitriolic and hateful. And in just a few months, COVID-19 has turned your world, my world, and the entire world upside down. Oh Lord, how long? Oh Lord, why? Does he know? Do you care? If so, why don't you do something about it? The people in Rwanda in Africa were wondering that back in 1994. I want to introduce you to a, one of my closest friends, a dear brother and servant, a spiritual son in the Lord. And um, his name is Pius Nia Kiyiro. Many of you have seen the film Hotel Rwanda. When in 100 days, one million Tutsis were slaughtered in the genocide by the ethnic Hutu extremists. My friend Pius lost 12 members of his own family in the genocide. He was left for dead, feigned death, and that's the only reason he lived in his village. The Hutus not only wanted to exterminate the Tutsis, but in the most horrific means possible, Pius learned that his own sister was burned alive, a teenage girl at the time. Today, Pius and I love another good news. Jail and prison ministry chaplains are ministering in the Rwanda prisons to the very people who murdered members of their family. Every chaplain in Rwanda has led someone to Jesus Christ that killed a member of their family. Incredible. Only God's grace and mercy. And out of this 
horrible genocide, murders, and mutilation was born the Good News Jail and Prison Ministry of 11 chaplains who have led tens of thousands of inmates to Christ, who now have forgiven, have eternal life, and will be in heaven forever someday. But in 1994, at that time, the believers, including Pius, were asking, where is God in all this suffering? I want you to meet Pius, and I want you to listen to his testimony it's just a very short one, but I think you'll catch the glimpse of the heart of Pius for his people in this genocide. During the 1994 genocide, I lost 12 close family members. I learned how my sisters were killed. They were burnt alive. M my cousins and my brothers, they were beaten to death. We thought even God uh, had forgotten our country and our people. This is a man who has every right to be angry at the world, to be angry at God, but he decided that he would seek healing. When I was one day in prayer, I had a, a voice telling me, if you want to keep serving me, you have to forgive those people who have killed your people. The people who have made so many people orphans and widows, I couldn't forgive them. As we seek the Lord in prayer, He transforms our hearts and we begin to see the world more as He does. I began to pray for those people. If you want to forgive someone, you just start praying for him. As you pray for him, you, you will feel uh, uh, mercy and forgiveness coming up in your heart. God gave Pius a passion for taking the truth to the prisoners of this country. And now he leads a ministry that has 11 chaplains working in 11 different prisons. We could see uh, so many people coming to the Lord. And uh, uh, the prisoners could not believe uh, the, the, uh, the motivating influence uh, which was behind us, pushing us to go to prison and preach the gospel. They've led thousands of people to a life-changing connection with Jesus. And it happened because Pius was obedient to the call that God gave him for his life. Forgotten people matter to God. Now that's about as active of a description as you can get of what life was like in the days of Habakkuk. Let's go to point number two. He's asked the question, God, do you even care? And now let's look at God's answer in verses 5 through 11. And the answer is simply God is providentially working out his plan. In these verses, God says this to Habakkuk without stating it exactly. He's saying, I am not indifferent, I am not inactive, and I am at work in accomplishing my purposes. It reminds us that while God may seem silent and uninvolved in our world, he always has a plan to deal with evil. He always works out justice, eventually. Not in your time or mine 
but in his time. And so Habakkuk encourages us to wait on the Lord, expecting that he will indeed work out all things for his good and glory. But his plan, let's admit it, is often mysterious. Look at verses 5 and 6 where we see this. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God reveals his plan to Habakkuk without any explanation whatsoever. Habakkuk says, God, what are you going to do? God says, you won't believe me if I told you. Habakkuk says, tell me. God tells him. Habakkuk says, I don't believe you. Just like he said. Why couldn't he believe it? Because the same thought of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 that you and I wrestle with as well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are always mysterious. His inaction is mysterious. His unexpected providences are mysterious. And certainly his unusual instruments are mysterious. He can use believers and unbelievers. Individuals, he can use nations. He can use godly people. He can use ungodly instruments because why? He is sovereign Lord. So now at this point in history, the Lord's timetable reveals it's time for Babylon. We've already seen Egypt on, as the dominant power, then Assyria. Now it's Babylon. 539, it will be Media Persia. Then it's going to be Greece under Alexander the Great. Then it's going to be the Roman Empire. And then Daniel points down through the centuries of a dominant world power at the time after the rapture of the church during the tribulation period that is reigning at that time until Christ comes back at his second coming. And so God's ways are mysterious. But let me also say that God's plan is often not only mysterious, but misunderstood. Look at verses 7 through 11. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sun. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pow up the earth and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God's work involves Babylon, the Chaldeans, who were without rival, a terrible and a dreaded people. As we saw, he likens them to animals like horses, swifter than leopards, more fierce than wolves who swoop down upon their prey like vultures. They're bent on violence. Their brutality can be demonstrated in the way they treated King Zedekiah of Judah right after Jerusalem fell. The last thing Zedekiah saw with his physical eyes were his sons being put to death 
by the Babylonians. And immediately after his sons were put to death, that awful memory forever seared in his mind, they put out King Zedekiah's eyes to blind him. They bound him in shackles and took him to Babylon. Yes, God will even use the pagan, ruthless, violent pagans to accomplish his purposes. By the way, 600 years later, the Apostle Paul will refer to these very verses we're reading when he's preaching to the Jewish people in the synagogues of Antioch of Pisidia. He preaches of God's mighty work at the cross, the glorious resurrection that we so celebrated wonderfully last weekend. And then as he preaches about this, he tells them they better acknowledge what God is doing. Listen to Acts 13, 40 to 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets, that would be Habakkuk, one of them, should come about. Look, you scoffers, here it is. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Paul is telling the Jews who crucified Christ that God is going to judge you just like he did the Jewish people in Habakkuk's day. But you're not going to believe it any more than your fathers believed it in Habakkuk's day. But it's going to come. And judgment did come. Indeed, it came through a pagan and ruthless people, the Romans. For in 70 AD under Titus, the city of Jerusalem was wiped out. 1,100,000 Jewish people were killed, slaughtered. 116,000 bodies were thrown over the walls of Jerusalem just for sport. 100,000 Jews were sold into slavery, so many that the market was flooded and they didn't even bring as much money as a horse. It came. The judgment of God is often delayed. But it surely comes in God's perfect time. Indeed, God's ways are mysterious. His ways are misunderstood. But thirdly, in point C, his plan is always moral. Yes, always moral. The ultimate triumphant of right, the ultimate glorification of God, the ultimate setting up of God's kingdom is the end of all history, and God is moral. He can do no wrong whatsoever. And I'll tell you, God's just as sovereign in how it all ends up as how it all began. God is going to end history because he began it. And he has divine control over every aspect of history. Not one thing has ever happened that hasn't either been directly caused by God or at least permitted by God. He knows what he's doing. Every single thing happening in this world today, it's right on schedule because God has a timetable, a divine timetable. He's working in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And we believe the day we're waiting for it could be today, could be next week, could be next year. We don't know. Don't get caught up and try to look at current events and then determine the understanding of biblical prophecy. You'll get confused. Let God speak in his timing. A day, a hundred years from now, a thousand, we don't know. But we do know eventually Christ is coming and he will set up his kingdom on earth as well. 
let me bring it to conclusion. I think the question asked of us today in the midst of all that we're facing is this. The question is simply, can you really trust God for all matters of life and of death? Do you believe that God is so infinitely wise that he cannot make a mistake? That he is so omnipotent that he cannot be turned aside from his purposes? That he is so loving, catch this, that he would never give you or me needless pain. If you believe that, and if you claim that by faith, you believe correctly and you are on your way to a deeper fellowship of Christ. Once again this morning I was reminded of those wise words by Dr. Raymond Edmond, former president of Wheaton College. He was a great writer, had a deep walk with God, and he wrote a little devotional in quietness and in confidence and how a godly person should react to those times. He just doesn't understand what God is doing. Number one, he says, I am reassured that God brought me to this place and it is by his good sovereign will that I am in the perfect place of his choosing. Number two, God will keep me here in his love and he will give grace to me to behave as his child and God will make the trial a blessing teaching me the lesson he intends for me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. Number three, God's, in God's good time, he can bring me out again, how and when he alone knows. Yes, we're here by his appointment. We're in his keeping. We're under his training and for his timing and his purpose. I hope today, my dear friend, in closing, that you know Christ as your Savior. And if you have never responded to God by thanking him for Christ who suffered on the cross for all your sins and rose again, even now in the quietness of the moment, maybe in your living room or wherever you're watching this from, that you would just pray a prayer something like this. Oh God, the best way I know how, right now, I trust Christ and Christ alone as my personal Savior. And then if you know the Lord, that you'd get your mind refocused on God, on his greatness, and on the word of God. If you look inside, you're going to get discouraged. If you look around you, you're going to get depressed. But if you look up to heaven, you're going to be delighted. And that's part of the journey of going from anxiety to adoration. God bless you, and thank you for listening.